This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Talk the Talk, and I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And Buzz, I think we should spend today commemorating, noting, and honoring the heroes of September 11th. I saw last night on 60 Minutes a remarkable uh, remembrance of the firefighters of, of the NYFD, uh, the New York Fire, Firefighters Department, and the hero, the courage, the, the, the dedication to duty and the love of their fellow people and the, those they tried to rescue. This was an amazing story. I had forgotten how courageous. I, I, I admit this, and I'm uh, certainly not proud of it, how courageous they were and how many of them died and how they went into that building uh, to try to rescue people on those 78th, 82nd, 83rd floor. Um, I had also forgotten that one reason that the supervisory personnel sent the sent the firefighters in is because they had no idea that the building could actually collapse. The, the I forget which which supervisory uh, uh, firefighter who survived uh, being interviewed on 60 Minutes last night, and he said, we had no idea. This had never happened in the history of the world that a large steel frame building had collapsed. And then you watch it collapse. And the film, the, the tape that was available, was just, just mind-boggling and so emotional. Uh, there was a, a, a videographer, a filmmaker, who was filming something for the fire department that day and happened to be with one of the departments and has amazing footage. Uh, I, 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 my, my heart was in my throat the entire time I was watching this and the interviews with the families. And one of the points was that the fire firefighting and being a member of the fire department often is handed down generation to generation. And the kids, well, they're not kids anymore, obviously they're adults, uh, but the children of the firefighters who died, who are now part of the department, their testimonials, just enough to make you cry. You know, Bill, I uh, spent one year um, as a volunteer in my town's fire department, during which I never attended a fire. Um, I worked during the day, so my duty was going to be when dispatched at night, and it just didn't happen, thankfully, during that year. Um, and while we're talking about this, I just want to divert for one second, uh, because what I saw when I was training was instance after instance of the kind of courage you just alluded to that that was all about what we think of as 9-11. Unbelievable courage, people running into the greatest danger imaginable in order to save lives. And um, last night at the Hager Farm, which many people know Route 2, the Hagers suffered the loss of a barn. I think there were 39 animals who died, um, equipment, uh, steel equipment that melted. There were 15 local fire departments that responded in a mutual aid way to that. And just like during my training, these people, even in the smallest of fires, put themselves at risk. 
they 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 climb into places they bang down doors not knowing what's going to happen and it happens every day throughout this country and um they do deserve to be acknowledged 911 was an incredible example of courage and commitment to civilization to what we all are and want to be and even though those firefighters did not know that the building would collapse they did know that they might never come out, that they might be trapped in that building and never get out. There was only one staircase in one of the towers that was actually still available, and they didn't know if any of them were still available, and they were uh, making their way up to those people. The voices, the recordings of the people asking to be saved, saying, please come, please save me, and then their last words, tell my husband or my wife, my spouse, my children, how much I love them, how much they mean to me. They knew they were dying. And then... And that's their last thought. And those are the last words, the last... And then the transmission goes dead. I want to thank you for turning to the victims for a minute. I do not want to leave the courage of the firefighters as something to talk about, but I represented a fellow from Turner's Falls who was a UMass... He was a UMass uh, computer technician specialist. That's what his job was. Christopher... Karstangin, he was on Flight 175, United 175, that crashed into the South Tower. He was one of the 65 people on that plane that was hijacked and who apparently knew a half an hour before they crashed into the tower that, that's, that he had been hijacked and didn't know, and that somebody else was in, in the cockpit operating uh, that plane. And I always, 9-11 is a really difficult day for me because I always remember... Chris Karstangin. Um, another topic completely is I also remember those people in Guantanamo, in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, whose lives were taken, in addition to the 3,000 on 9-11, um, in furtherance of 9-11. So I do, I do want to continue our conversation about the courage of those who whose lives were lost and who risked their lives to save others on 9-11, but we can't forget the consequence of 9-11 was, will never be the same. Dan, I just wanted to add that uh, over the weekend I watched a, docu a documentary created by National Geographic called One Day in America, and they go through the lives of the firefighters and actually have them uh, discuss moment by moment um, uh, their reactions and their responses and how they're thinking about the lives of the people underneath them. I mean, you think about the fire department's captains having to make decisions about people going up. He lost his brother and one of them because when his brother went up, he never came back down. And they knew that those decisions were going to uh, forever, you know, change them. And they might not, like you said, Bill, they might never come back. Many of them didn't. And, uh, you know, you sometimes don't expect the buildings to fall, but you know it's a possibility at that moment. There's just either you're going to save the lives or you're not. So they all and decided to just go up. They just took their job like... Right, and right. they all knew that leaving aside the question of the building collapse, which was not foremost on their minds, that they might well never get yeah. out. But they knew they had to go up to mm -hmm. go help people. I mean, that's, that's what they, they were willing to go out and do that and do that sacrifice right. and, and to help people. And despite the likelihood or the probabilities of dying there, mm -hmm. not one firefighter said no. Yeah. Not, not one refused and some 360 of them died. Yeah. 
Um, no, it's... I, I, I was reminded watching this last night uh, at, on 9 11. Uh, my brother was working and living in New York, mm. and my daughter, mm. our daughter, was living and working in New York. Mm. And uh, with regard to my our daughter, uh, she called. We got a hold of her relatively. She was not. She was also uptown. She wasn't downtown, so yeah. we weren't really concerned about her. Different from my brother. I'll yeah. explain that in just a second. Um, and we were talking to Joe, our daughter, and said, "Well, what, what, what have you been doing?" And she said, "And this actually made this crystallized for me mm. the, the tragedy of this." I said, "What have you been doing?" She said, "I went to donate blood." Mm. I said, "Oh, well, that's a good thing to do." I said, "And what happened?" And she said. They didn't want my blood. I said, oh, what, what's wrong? And she said, nothing's wrong with me. They don't want blood because they don't need blood because they're no survivors. Mm. Mm. That, I mean, I said, whoa, wow. whoa. That was intense. Yeah, yeah whoa, whoa was it. when uh, I, I listened to the, the uh, commentary of John Stewart as he told Congress how ashamed mm. they should be of themselves for refusing to... Um, Act on the Compensation Act for those people uh, who who were uh, whose lungs were permanently damaged as a result of their effort to help people in 9/11. I mean, it's just so powerful and so accurate yeah. a statement of Congress's inaction being shameful. And Bill, tell us about your brother. You you were mentioning. Yeah. So my brother's uh, usual subway stop. To go to work, he worked in downtown. He worked for the uh, uh, for the housing department of the city of New York, and his subway stop was the World Trade Center, mm-hmm. and it uh, and he should have been arriving about the time that the planes flew into the World Trade Center mm-hmm. for the war, the Twin Towers. I think. I think. Uh, the anyway. And so we called, and we called, and we called, and we called, and we couldn't reach him. Mm. And I was getting really quite panicky about right. this. Um, and finally, I re- finally he called back, and I said, "Where have you been? Do you understand how worried we've been?" And he said, "Yeah, but there was no phone reception. I couldn't make a call. The lines, the the." Uh, it was impossible to make a, a phone call. Um, I, and oh, by the way, I had eventually had to borrow one because my phone was dead or wasn't on me or whatever. Of course, you're ready. You're so relieved that he's alive and fine, but on the other hand, you're ready to kill him for uh, you know not calling and telling us mm-hmm. earlier. Um, but I think that this many years later, you you forget um, how extraordinary that day was, mm. and. One reaction I had, I was interested, and we'll come back to this question of the ramifications and consequences of 9-11 in a few moments, but one of, one of the things that occurred to me was you can understand, you can understand, I'm not saying remotely that it was, mm. but you can understand how the country said, we've got to get even. Mm. We want vengeance mm. with regard to the people who are responsible for this. Mm. You can understand it. It's, it's just... Those images of the building collapsing are just extraordinary mm-hmm. and heart-wrenching. Mm. But, Bill, this is what I don't understand. I don't understand why we don't formally have 
a uh, recognition of 9-11. That is, th there's all sorts of things that we commemorate. This was really globally, it, it changed the nature of all of us, uh, not just geopolitically, but individually. We experienced something there that uh, was so horrific and important that it, it, it changed your view of the world. And it yeah. changed the view of each other. I, I think there should be some sort of formal, it shouldn't just be a few people in the studio that just informally chat about it. I think that there should be a commemoration. Well, there, let, me, let, me, let me just say two things. First, the reason my brother was okay, mm -hmm. he was late to work. Yeah. And his train was going over the, was going over the bridge on the way from uh, Queens where he lived to Manhattan, mm -hmm. and it stopped mm -hmm. right in the middle. Mm. And they saw the smoke coming from the World mm. Trade Center, where he was supposed to have been. Oh wow! Um, he didn't work in the World Trade Center. He worked right, right, right near it. Right near it, and oh. that was a subway stop. Um, I, I think that 9/11 is actually, in some ways, uh, observed in a more meaningful way than uh, nationally proclaimed holidays. I mean, come Labor Day, uh, how many people are really uh, celebrating? Uh, organized labor in union <laughs> and come Memorial Day, how many people, I mean, there are some, but how many people would say, yeah, this is the day I'm going to spend the day uh, memorializing those who have fallen. And what uh, uh, in Lincoln's words, the last full measure of devotion mm -hmm. um, given to fight for uh, freedom. Uh, but a lot of national holidays, you know, it's like the Christmas is a religious holiday for a lot of people, but yeah. it's for many, many, many others. Yeah. It's just a commercial holiday, holiday. Yeah. Um, or it certainly has, uh, maybe it's a time for family, but it's not necessarily a religious, uh, although obviously for observant Christians it is. I, I, I agree with that, but I, I, we just happened to be in Spain for March 11th of, I think, 2004, mm -hmm. when 195 people were killed in a train that exploded uh, in the Madrid uh, station. Um, and what happened was, right after the day after that, at exactly the same hour, there was a nationally proclaimed um, five minutes of silence. Everyone stopped. We were out. We had had some breakfast or something. We were going shopping. We didn't really know that that's what's going to happen in the whole world stopped and since then Spain stops at that time to commemorate the death of 195 innocent victims of a bombing on a train and it's a government sanctioned event yeah well I just wanted to say I for me I wasn't yet an official adult I was 17 uh, when 9-11 happened I was a senior in high school and I will say that that to me was a, a really change feeling in the country. It went from Afghanistan to Iraq. And we see how the politics essentially went off on a different direction. It, to me, it feels, and this was only when I was 17 years old, that the country was on a different trajectory. America felt like it was on top, but things were moving in the right direction in, in some senses, right, of the world. I bet I just think after 9-11, we went and detoured into, maybe we weren't headed in the right direction, but 9-11 took us into this path. And I remember, you know, like uh, you know, not making sense of the Iraq war and uh, having to oppose that and how essentially it all, but the original story of all of that starts with 9-11. You know, there, in my view, there's no Iraq war without 9-11, right? 
So then the country isn't going to spend $3 trillion on that. There isn't going to be this, you know, war afoot, people, you know, nationalists, you know, everybody coming back and uniting behind the troops and going in to invade Iraq, even though it made no sense. Iraq was not involved in it. Like what the government claimed were lies about mobile labs and, you know, weapons and all these things. I mean, it, it was tough initially to even talk to your friends to say, like, that's a terrible war. It's a terrible. It makes no sense. There's no logic behind it but like you were saying bill just the feeling that that day kind of instilled i think in a lot of people caused a lot of them to feel like we got to believe this this is a huge moment in the country and this thing happened and we lost three thousand plus people and we can't forget that and then i think you know we, we knew this about vietnam it's not like governments don't lie when it comes to war um you know gulf of tonkin is what i'm specifically referring to there but it, and then it, the, the, whole, the, the, the whole WMD uh, argument about Iraq, it just weapons of, mass we, weapons of mass destruction, you know, they made up this story and then they were fumbling. Oh, no, it wasn't about WMD. We're here to instill democracy. I mean, it was just, you know, and then we spent three trillion dollars. I mean, I guess Iraq today is better uh, than it was maybe in the, you know, mid 2000s after a civil war essentially cost Iraqi lives and treasures. And so we see how one event essentially transpired and, and created. Even kind if of the you're right, today. it's not better for the 180,000 people who died better. in the Iraq war well, or the two and a half million out of 25 million who ended up homeless. And, and I just wanted to quickly add something about the Iraqi uh, situation is also, you know, Iran has played an influence to make sure that country doesn't destabilize because they share a border with it. So not saying that Iranians are doing anything right, but they're, they're afraid if that country was destabilized that the refugees were going to come into Iran. So they've been trying and now Iraq and Iran are sort of intertwined. So it made Iraq more powerful. I mean, Iraq, Iran more powerful by now having an ally in the Middle East like Iraq, because a lot of Iraqi politics is connected to Iran. Sorry, but go ahead, Bill. It is, for, without question, a day that those of us who are alive for it will never forget. It's one of the two days in my life mm -hmm. where people can say, where were you when? Mm -hmm. and, and one was when you heard that Kennedy was assassinated or shot. And the second was when you learned about the planes hitting the World Trade Center. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. We're continuing the same inclusive programming that we've been offering since 2004 to students of all ages with and without disabilities. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, dance movement, cooking. Come take a tour. Scholarships available. Wholechildren.org. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. 
This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or co-workers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this 9-11, we remember 9-11-2001. Buzz, you mentioned in the earlier segment that uh, Afghanistan was, of course, a consequence, the war in Afghanistan, a consequence of 9-11. And another consequence of 9-11 was Guantanamo Bay, the detention center, and the almost 800 people who the United States government locked up, not accused of charges, but locked up there. And you were, of course, very involved in representation of Guantanamo detainees. Why don't you give us a bit of the history about how Guantanamo was a consequence of 9-11, and then give us your reflections on Guantanamo. And you know this history very well, Bill. You know that uh, in the wake of the October bombing of Kabul in Afghanistan, um, that... um, Bodies were being collected on bounties. Like, um, uh, how do we figure out who um, are in these Afghanistan uh, training camps run by al-Qaeda who um, might have been involved or in, in terror, are involved in terror? And, and so since we couldn't identify them, we didn't know how to identify them. We just offered bounties to anybody who turned somebody in. And as a result, the almost 800 uh, men, well, some, um, may have been seriously involved, but so many people who were not involved uh, in the wake of 9-11, it just felt justified to the U.S. administration to uh, open up this, this, these kennels in uh, the Guantanamo Naval Station, that 45-square-mile station in southern Cuba that we lease, um, perhaps unlawfully, <laughs> and we just started collecting people. And now there's about uh, 30... Uh, left, um, and the other, there were nine who have died that were there out of the 780, and um, all the others have been transferred or released, and uh, they, for the the vast majority of them, were not involved in 9-11. 9-11, when you're really furious about something, and you were just, your thumb was hurt, and you're screaming, and you're looking at anybody to blame. That's what it was like. It's like just um, let's collect people who don't look like us and who don't speak the same language as us and who uh, condemn us because politically they don't like what the U.S. hegemony uh, process has resulted in. That's who was at Guantanamo. And I can tell you that I've read so much of the evidence against the eight guys that I represented, and um, I saw they just weren't involved, Bill. They weren't involved. 9-11 had a devastating effect, not just on the victims on September 11th, but in the wake of 
literally millions have been adversely affected and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands dead and so many lost their freedom. Um, it's, it's a shameful part of our history that uh, this terrible thing happened to us. We had the sympathy of the world at our fingertips and instead we decided to become attack dogs. And even though I understand those who say, well, talk about stirring a hornet's nest, but uh, we should be better than that. Well, I, I agree we should be better than that. I also uh, wonder what, first of all, is not part of uh, George Bush's uh, DNA to not try to be a, uh, a macho attack, attack dog. But beyond that, I wonder if the United States government said, well, we actually don't know who did it. We can't find anyone to blame. And so we're not going to do anything with that. Would politically, would that have played in the United States? I think that in some ways we get the government and the policies we want. Not always, to be sure. But in this instance, I think the, the American people <laughs> writ large supported this war, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about the war of Afghanistan or yes. Iraq. Okay. Well, yeah, Afghanistan, <clears throat> because, you know, Al-Qaeda was base there. You knew the United States would do that, but they went far beyond just hitting right. Al-Qaeda right. in Afghanistan. They then got involved in, in the Afghan civil war uh, between the Northern Alliance and the Taliban, and then it was about Afghanistan, and then slowly over a year, Bush made the case to have to go into Iraq. Right. And the country spent, you know, 20 years later, you know, who knows how many lives uh, dead and affected, and $7 trillion later. Which I think is part of the debasing current politics today. If I just mention something about that, is it's a lack of trust and legitimacy lost in the government because I think in large part of you know the, these wars and how much we've spent. And my point earlier, what I was trying to say about Iran is, what has America really gained from any of this? If you just looked at it from a narrow interest of America, you know, after spending what seven trillion, five trillion dollars, trillion. I mean, imagine if we had spent one trillion here. And what we could do, just one. Well, I, you know, I, I just want to go That's back to, to where I, and I, I certainly agree with you, Bill, that the American people wanted to uh, retribution and um, wanted to hold those people to account who were responsible for it. Absolutely, and they were justified in wanting that. But bombing a city like Kabul, we're looking right now. We're calling Putin a war criminal because he bombed cities where civilians foreseeably lived. And Bill, there in Kabul, you know, whatever date was, I now forget, October 24th or whatever date we actually bombed, that shock and awe thing we came to be known as. Oh, that, that, was that was Iraq. That was Iraq. No, I'm saying yeah, it yeah, came yeah. to be known as in yeah. Baghdad. But um, that people, civilians, children, women who had nothing to do with 9-11, had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda, they were dead. They were killed. Homes were destroyed because the way that we responded, not that we responded against Al-Qaeda, but that we responded against a country filled with civilians in cities filled with civilians. And we did that for the longest war in our history, 19 yeah, years yeah. in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not defending the United States government's policies. Uh, it was a war that made no sense that was impossible to wage. I mean, how would you possibly differentiate uh, Al-Qaeda in cities from the civilians living in the floor above them or the building next door. And uh, the 
the, the accuracy of, of uh, drone strikes um, uh, is not is not a matter of scientific perfection. I mean, this uh, this was a war where a lot of civilians died um, because war has its own illogic. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The cause of a fire at Hakers Farm in Coleraine Saturday morning is under investigation. The three-alarm fire resulted in the loss of a barn, four sows, 35 piglets, two tractors, a baler, mower, and more, according to Sherry Hager. Coleraine Fire responded to the Hager Brothers Farm around 9.40 a.m. A third alarm was struck shortly thereafter to bring in additional tankers, with approximately 15 communities supplying mutual aid. There's an ongoing Title IX investigation into the alleged mistreatment of LGBTQ students at Amherst Middle School by staff members. What has been called a toxic atmosphere within the school administration has led to the resignation of Superintendent Michael Morris and three school committee members. Education Association member Mika McGee said the issues have to do with lack of transparency and communication from school leadership. The voices got louder and louder because they were being ignored. And so the students themselves brought forth some of these issues. The APA got behind the students and the families who were basically saying that they are not being listened to and that their students are are suffering. There will be a joint meeting of the town council and remaining two school committee members tonight at 530 at Amherst Town Hall. Today marks 22 years since the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center. Nearly 3,000 people were killed that day, including four people from West Springfield and Westfield, Tara Shea Creamer, Brian Murphy, Danny Trant, and Melissa Harrington Hughes. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance for scattered showers and thunderstorms, high 76 to 80. Tonight, mostly cloudy, chance for showers, overnight lows 60 to 64. And the outlook for Tuesday becoming partly sunny, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Are you at a dead end when it comes to dealing with that awful joint pain? So was Rick Rawlings. I did a year and a half of steroidal injections in my shoulders, both shoulders. They weren't helping at all, and it was just a Band-Aid. As for the constant pain medication prescriptions... I didn't get any relief. I didn't get any sleep, so I just stopped taking them. I didn't want to get hooked on drugs. But one day... I heard a uh, commercial on the radio about QC Kinetics. Rick called QC Kinetics and learned all about natural biologic therapies, non-surgical treatments that actually help the body restore damaged joint tissue. And it was life-changing. After doing the QC Kinetics, I feel like I have a new life again. Today, my shoulders feel wonderful. My only regret was I wish... I had done it sooner. From dead ends to new beginnings. Call today and learn about QC Kinetics long-lasting relief. Call QC Kinetics 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Welcome to our Black in the South Valley segment with UMass Professor Amilkar Shabazz. I want to ask you, Professor Shabazz, about an article that I read in the, on the, from the front page of yesterday's New York Times about DEI statements in higher education, something I really didn't know about and hadn't thought about, but it really got me to thinking, and I'm so pleased that you can be with us today to help us understand what it means across higher education and if these DEI statements have any effect on UMass Amherst. Let's start at the beginning for those who were uh, perhaps the few listeners who may have had as little knowledge about this as I did until yesterday. What is a DEI statement and how does it fit into the big picture of diversity on college university campuses? Great. Thank you. Well, you know, the um, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are concepts that um, have uh, that have arisen uh, in the last decade or so, really to replace the um, what we've referred to as the affirmative action regime. And um, as that uh, regime came under uh, continuing assault uh, at the Supreme Court, and I notably uh, recognize the Hollywood decision. In, uh, in, in 1996 against the University of Texas. That was really one of the staggering uh, blows. It was followed by some cases in, in Michigan, Bruder and Gruder, and the, um, one of the holdout justices now passed. Um, she gave affirmative action about 20 more years. But, but the net effect of, of all of those decisions was basically to render all uh, race conscious efforts um, in turn that the, under the uh, so-called affirmative action regime very suspect and, uh, um, and, 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 and administrators being college administrators being uh, risk averse to any kind of lawsuits or, or political challenges, especially in states that uh, where the, the politics sort of favor where the Supreme Court has drifted on these matters. Um, the, the, the very mention and very talk about doing anything on the basis of, of affirmative action was, uh, was very, very uh, problematized and, and in many cases uh, um, just went away. So what rose in the uh, uh, vacuum or in the aftermath was this broader argument for diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion as core you know, as sort of core principles. And, and, and by doing so, first of all, it expanded it beyond simply a race conscious matter, which again, going back to the Bakke decision, going back to Brown versus Board of Ed, you know, race has been a lot of the focus, but now under the, the DEI idea, it, it encompasses gender uh, based uh, discrimination and encompasses a wide array of 
protected categories, veteran status. So now you've, you've, you've got race bundled up in there with all of these other um, uh, so-called protected uh, categories in, in federal uh, law and federal policy. And so that became the new way to work toward the same goal and of, of trying to make as a core principle uh, the idea of, of fighting segregation, of, fight, of fighting for racial inclusion among other forms of inclusion, uh, a core aspect of our uh, college life, of our college campuses. And so that's, that's a bit of the background. So I think that a, a, lot of, a, a lot of people simply say, of course, DEI is a core value. Of course, it's important. I mean, what could possibly be the uh, uh, question about that? But it's a relatively new idea that DEI actually has a significant and meaningful and important impact on students, including the math majors, including the scientists, or maybe especially the scientists. And I'm wondering if you could spend another minute with us on why DEI for a college or university experience actually matters. Why should it be a core value? I'm gonna stay a little second more with the faculty focus, but again, as the New York Times article points out, a lot of students are concerned about this. So for example, in faculty hiring, and let's take the math department, or let's take an engineering department that is, is, has been an old boys club old, uh, and, and has never had a black faculty member. Uh, or has never had a woman uh, a faculty member for that matter. I mean, it, it's it's been a pretty exclusive uh, white male, maybe an Asian uh, uh, male uh, has 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 come in the door, and and so the effort becomes the concern again under the old affirmative action regime is you know uh, can you try to hire someone African American? Can you try to hire someone Latinx? Can you you know so the the push was there. Well, as that no longer became the push, now it becomes diversity, equity, inclusion is the push. And these statements emerge simply to ask in the application packet to give a comment about, um, you know, of a page or, or, or one or two pages of what about your experience that could live, that could contribute to the sense of diversity, equity, and inclusion for a department, a chemical engineering department, such as the one you're applying to, or, or, or such as the math department, how could you contribute by virtue of your lived experience? And so you could go into your class background, you could go into your ethnic, your religion, your sexuality, your gender identity expression, you could do whatever you want to show, you know, something from your own lived experience that you would bring to the table to, to help promote equity in, in an inclusive environment in your department. That's all the statement is. And it becomes a part of the evaluation process along with your publications, your, your, you know, your dissertation, the kind of work you're doing, the fit. And so this is, but this has now become so politically charged in our current atmosphere that there is a pushback against those kinds of letters. And there's a push for them, such as at UCLA, when the students began uh, uh, pointing out how someone the department wanted to hire had been opposed to these kinds of letters, even though he had been filled it out for this job. The Times article yesterday made, made the point that 
these statements are criticized as kind of forced speech. Why should someone who's applying for a faculty position have to give a statement about how they feel and or experience and or are knowledgeable or empathetic with uh, DEI goals? Um, on the other hand, there are people saying, if you can't fill out that part of the application, you probably are not really uh, equipped to be a professor uh, dealing with a constituency that has many different needs, aspirations, and backgrounds. So, how do you how do you, how do you sort that out? Precisely, and and you know where where the pushback comes for anybody is is that um, again because all of this is is voluntary. Somebody can maybe not put it in the application, but again, then colleagues will ask, well, why why didn't they they submit it? But the the um, the real question is, some folks don't want this to be core, and I'm uh, a core value, and and I'm reminded of William Rehnquist. I think it was that um, you know when he uh, back as a clerk or, or whatever, um, he wrote a memo opposing the reasoning uh, of the Brown v. Board of Ed decision, which effectively struck down Plessy and effectively struck down you know white supremacy as the law of the land. And, 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 and I think that's really where some are of the mindset that we ought to go back to, that Plessy was, was good reasoning, that Brown was wrong reasoning, and that any efforts to try to promote um, social uh, uh, inclusion, uh, racial integration, um, you know, is, is all wrongheaded, and that we can be, we ought to be a, a country where white supremacy is, is allowed as a uh, uh, not only a possible mindset, but but the official mindset. I think that's really where some people want to push it back to, point blank. It is extraordinary to me uh, that the Supreme Court, uh, this Supreme Court, if you take their logic, their rationale, and what they say in recent decisions, what they are saying in effect is that Brown versus the Board of Education was wrongly decided. The court just got it wrong. It just made up that liberal idea that equality of education was a constitutional right. But if you look at their reasoning in recent cases, they are saying Brown versus the Board of Education was wrong. And That's spot on. And, and to your point that you were raising in the segment around 9-11, I'll have to say, you know, again, it comes back to the point you made. We get the government we vote for. We get the government that, that we tolerate, that we allow, that we, that we you know, permit. And so if we want to go back to Plessy, if we want to go back to uh, a, an officially racist, uh, segregated, divided society, that is what we're going to get. But I don't think that's where, that's where uh, uh, our young people, that's where people are, are, are going to allow it coming on. Going back to these DEI statements, which are part of an application for a faculty position at colleges and universities and only a part of it, um, could you tell us whether that is part of the application process for a professorship at UMass? It's completely voluntary. We have a search process being organized in my own department, and uh, and yeah, and so I think we're voting in favor of of uh, of asking for uh, a type of statement about how you would contribute. And you know, we're an African American Studies department, and. We get a lot of applications from non-African Americans. The old days where our departments were were uh, largely made up of African American faculty members is is long gone. Uh, my department is half white, 
uh, now. So, uh, um, you know, it's it's uh, <laughs> those days are long gone. So, you know, really, we're we're simply asking um, and it is to say we can we do hire, you know, whites to come in and teach African-American studies. We look at a at a diverse set of, of, of factors than just their own lived experience. But we'd also like to be able to hear from people about their lived experiences, how they're going to relate as a as a young white woman in a classroom of of folks wanting to understand problems of racism anti-black racism and uh and so you know yeah we're going to do it but it's voluntary a lot of departments are not doing it and especially in light of the recent supreme court decision of articles like this in the in the new york times i think we're we're going to you know probably see other some of my other departments on campus opting not and and our current our new chancellor and the provost will will probably not push back on them about why why they're not uh, making it a part of their uh, of the screening process. So there's not one policy that governs all departments at UMass. It's up to each individual department. I mean, there are some basic things, um, you know, with respect to uh, uh, certain policies that that uh, are, are clear in from uh, from all departments. All they're going to run a background check on you to see if you're not a criminal, you know, have, have outstanding felony convictions or something. They're going to do yeah, that. Would, that would be nice to know. <laughs> They're going to do certain things across all departments. But but again, the idea of um, but the DEI piece is is largely voluntary. Well, the other thing, Professor Shabazz, I, I just want to point out when you say that the government is what we make it to be. Uh, where else but in education are we forming future citizens? And we talk about, you know, in civics we learned about us being a, a sort of pluralistic society, and pluralism by definition involves diversity and inclusion and not just uh, one flavor of people. So I think it's just critical that we do screen our future educators to teach our children their citizenship. I think it's to screen, but it's also, again, that, that, that teaching aspect and that core um, aspect of, of, of what we ought to be doing, particularly in, in, in education. And that is we've got to talk to our colleagues more. We've got to make the case why this is valuable, that it's not just like you say, the latest liberal idea or the latest thing we're trying to shove down down people's throats, but really to 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 bring people together to have, you know, hard conversations about it and, and hopefully try to achieve a certain consensus that some of these that doing things like the statements makes sense. We are Do you want to try to hit classic learning after the break? Sure, which we'll do. We'll continue our conversation with Professor Amilcar Shabazz, chair of the African-American Studies Department at UMass Amherst, right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman-owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales. We're design. We're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. 
No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with the chair of the African-American Studies Department at UMass Amherst, Amokar Shabazz. Uh, Professor Shabazz, on the jump page, for those of uh, our listeners who don't spend time with actual physical newspapers, that's the page of the newspaper where the story continues. The story about DEI statements on that same page was a new story about Florida in particular using a new admissions test. I was spending a lot of time scratching my head yesterday saying, now what? Now what? Um, could you tell us what that is and whether it's apt to have any currency here at UMass? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I hope not at UMass, but um, – you know, I could see Holy Cross and probably some other some other places. And, and uh, full disclosure, um, the head of Holy Cross right now is is kinfolk uh, from my wife's uh, family, the Rougeaus. But um, I, you know, and, and, and one other point in background, I'm a graduate of Catholic of a Catholic high school, Monsignor Kelly High School in in Beaumont, Texas. And I, my four years of high school was was absolutely drawn to the so-called great books, to the classics. This is in the 70s. And um, the, the kind of, uh, you know, Western uh, canon, Western e educational canon. And so what this classic learning test is something that uh, looks like has a lot of support from Catholic schools and whatnot, but it's, uh, it's a, um, a pulling together of all of these um, texts that as I'm looking at it, it's divided into um, uh, different authors by time period, uh, the ancients, um, the medievals, the early moderns, and the late moderns. Um, and the um, about maybe a hundred folks, and it's got a lot of saints in there, St. Thomas, St. Catherine, <laughs> uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, uh, uh, and this test, uh, let me interrupt for a second for just to tell our listeners who are on the classic learning test. That's the title of it would take the yeah. place and is intended to take the place of SATs or other yeah. under other classic aptitude tests and the uh, uh, ACT, both of them. And, and it's and it's in force now in, in Florida schools. Uh, you can opt for that. And not only uh, as an option, 
but you will get a bonus of points for Florida's uh, state higher ed uh, scholarships. So if you want a scholarship from the state to attend a school in Florida, uh, you'll get extra points if you opt for the classic learning test. And this is, again, a profit-driven test. I just think some lobbyists got to these DeSantis, gave some nice contributions to their campaign funds, and they, they got, went and adopt them, adopted them. It's another example, though, of teaching to the test, because if students are able to take this test and do well, their scholarship situation is much improved, and therefore this, the state of Florida is actually pushing kids towards a religious education as opposed to a more secular one. Religious and, and again, Western European. Now, there are a few African-Americans I note on here. I see Anna Julia Cooper. They've got Toni Morrison. They've got Martin Luther King, probably the letter from the Birmingham jail. Eli Weissel here, uh, James Baldwin, um, you know, but, but it's largely the uh, Flannery O'Connors, the Albert Camus, the, uh, you know, it, 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 it's largely a lot of your J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, mm -hmm. folks that, that, that Catholic schools like, like kids to read. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Professor Amakar Shabazz. This has been Black in the Valley. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this is our, well, first Monday in September landed on Labor Day. So we are having first Monday of the month the special uh, segment that we have with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller of Western New England University School of Law, where as a constitutional scholar, he talks about things of importance and interest to all of us. We are having first Monday here on the second Monday. Hello, Professor hey, Miller. Hey, Buzz. Hey, Bill. Good to be with you again. It's great to be with you. My goodness, there's been a lot of talk about the 14th Amendment recently. Now, the 14th Amendment, for those of us who need a refresher, the Section 1 of the 14th Amendment is what talks about due process and equal protection. Uh, it was uh, enacted uh, in uh, 1868 in the wake of the Civil War, 
in order to expand uh, uh, constitutional rights of the individual to equal protection under the law, so we stopped discriminating. Uh, it, it was in the wake of the 13th Amendment, which passed three years earlier, prohibiting slavery and indentured servitude. And the 14th Amendment also has Section 3, which we're going to talk about today, and a Section 5, which says Congress can do what it needs to in order to implement these rights which were created by the 14th Amendment. So, Professor Miller, I would love to hear your thinking about that, which has been in the news recently. Yes, yeah, Buzz. Uh, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which has been used very, very rarely, I want to say even if at all, is now top of mind. Uh, and it's top of mind because we actually have a former federal office holder who took an oath to support the Constitution who may well also have engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution of the United States. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment precludes someone who has been a federal officer and taken an oath to support the Constitution from serving again if they have also engaged in an uh, insurrection in violation of their oath. Or given aid or comfort to or the enemy. aid yeah. or comfort to, yep. to, the, to the enemy, which is, of course, also part of the definition of, of, of treason. Well, this seems to describe, in some ways, our current situation with former President Trump. And there have been, for good reasons, uh, lots of people thinking about ways to activate Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in order to keep former President Trump from even qualifying to run for president again, to keep him from appearing on the ballot in the states. In fact, uh, I think I read over the weekend that some voters in Colorado have sued the Secretary of State uh, out there uh, seeking to get a court order directing the Secretary of State to prevent Trump's name from appearing on the ballot in the 2024 presidential election on the ground that he is an insurrectionist. So let me just uh, go into that a little bit more. The, this lawsuit, which is um, being done by CREW, C-R-E-W, yep. which is Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, yep. the acronym is CREW, have brought that suit on behalf of six people who are um, challenging it. In the, under Colorado law, any citizen of Colorado may challenge their Secretary of State in court if the Secretary of State doesn't screen out those people who are ineligible for office, whether it's state or federal. If they're going to be on the Colorado ballot, they have to be eligible and qualified. And what eligible and qualified, by way of example, I'm just thinking, Bruce Miller, that uh, if you're not 35 years of age under the Constitution, you can't run for yep. president, you're ineligible, yes. right? If you are not a citizen of the United States, you're similarly unqualified yes. to run for president. Well, this argument is, and if you engage in insurrection under Section 3 of Article 14, I mean yep. Amendment 14, you are ineligible. Yep. yep. So far, so good. Well, yeah, Bill. Yeah, Bruce, uh, the f this part of the 14th Amendment. We should note that the 14th Amendment was one of the three amendments passed after the Civil War, the 13th Amendment prohibiting slavery and indentured servitude, the 14th Amendment with its equal protection and due process clauses, uh, and the 15th Amendment uh, preserving the right to vote. Okay. These are post-Civil War. This provision of the 14th Amendment was targeted at 
persons who had joined the insurrection, uh, the rebellion against the federal government, the splitting of the United States into two separate countries, clearly traitorous, uh, and this is what it was about. So how would you apply that historical purpose to Donald Trump? Well, uh, you would apply it to Donald Trump if, if you were so inclined by, by saying that the context is different, but that the actions and the intentions are fundamentally the same. That Trump, by fomenting uh, the uprising, um, perhaps the insurrection of January the 6th, 2021, uh, was in violation of, of Section 3. Um, it, certainly the aim of Section 3 uh, was to keep, primarily to keep former Confederate uh, leaders from becoming senators and members of Congress in case they got elected. Trump is very different from that, but the language is about insurrection more generally. So in that sense, it, it's sort of uh, applying uh, a provision of the Constitution to analogous things uh, to, the, to, the, to the ones that were that, that, that prompted it to be enacted. We'll go back to Buzz's question yeah. for a minute. He used the example that the Constitution yep. Yep. has an age requirement yes. for being president. Yes. Fine. We yep. can look at someone's birth yep. certificate, leaving aside the, uh, exactly. the questions about birth certificates for a minute, um, and decide whether or not someone is or is not 35 years old. Got it. Got but it. whether or not Trump engaged uh, in an yeah. insurrection, he, by it's, the way, yeah. Uh, he was not convicted yes. in the impeachment, which exactly. accused him of that. Exactly so he's been right. acquitted of exactly that. Right. How, how can and one secretary of state in one say, I'm going to decide on my own. I am exactly. the judge, the jury, and the executioner, and I've decided he engaged in insurrection. He says he doesn't, um, and therefore he can't even be on the ballot. How this, is that a, this an okay is, result? This is, as far as I can tell, precisely the problem with this theory. That is, we are asking a state executive branch office holder to make uh, a unilateral determination that Trump is, in fact, an insurrectionist without standards, without guidance, without any uh, sense of what process is due. This might well amount, if a secretary of state actually did this, and it's important here to recognize that the secretary of state of Colorado is waiting for a court to tell him what to do, isn't doing it um, on, 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 on his own. <clears throat> um, and it might be a bill of attainder, which the Constitution prohibits. The idea here is... A bill of attainder. A, a bill of attainder, is, yeah, is the, the idea that in order to be uh, uh, convicted of a serious offense uh, against the United States, you have to have a a judicial process make that decision, that a legislature or executive branch official can't simply declare you to have done something terrible. But that's what the Colorado statute says. It says you have to go to court. You may go. Citizens may go to who are eligible to vote yep. in yep. Colorado yep. may go to court and challenge the secretary yes. of state's yep. decision to put somebody on the ballot, and yep. the court has they to could. decide. They could. And apropos to this conversation, in New Mexico, that's exactly what happened. Yes. Commissioner Coy Griffin was disqualified yep. about a year ago yes. by Crew, the Citizens yes. for Responsibility yes. and Ethics, yep. filing yep. a lawsuit, yep. and the judge reviewed it yep. and found that, in fact, uh, Griffin had participated in January 6th and was therefore disqualified to run for county commissioner. Yep. yep. Took him off the ballot. Exactly. And that is, is, is conceivably permissible 
although I think it raises this difficulty as, as well, uh, that is, at, at having a, an executive branch official be the decision maker. Uh, but you also have there, the, in, in the example of Trump, you've got the problem of uh, a state official declaring a presidential candidate for a federal office to be ineligible. Now, some of the proponents of this idea, very smart, very well-intentioned, but I think possibly wrong on this question, people, a former uh, judge uh, Michael Luddig and, and renowned professor Lawrence Tribe, have, have said that, well, because there isn't any criminal prosecution attaching to this, uh, Trump has no real uh, liberty interest uh, in, in being able to run for president and that he can be disqualified without due process, that the due process clause simply doesn't attach. And Bill's point, which, which I, and, and you're raising it too, Buzz, is, is that whenever something, somebody is faced with losing something important, of course due process attaches. And our problem here is that we just don't know what process um, is due. And that's why the secretaries of state, I think, are going to be very, very reluctant uh, to remove Trump from the ballot. Now, of course, we can have voters... In, in state court, it might be easier using state law to sue the Secretary of State to try to get a court to tell the Secretary of State to take Trump off the ballot. The court whose job it is to and, interpret and the Constitution. And now the court's job to interpret the Constitution. I think that solves uh, the, the, the bill of attainder problem, but it does not solve the what process is due problem. And we do have the, have the fact that we have no standards here, that if this were a criminal prosecution, Trump would have to be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt in, in front of a jury, that this is very much like a, a criminal proceeding. And we have the fact Section 5 of the 14th Amendment authorizes Congress to act to enforce this clause. Congress has not done anything to enforce this clause. So we really have, have, a, have a problem here, a very general problem, of whether we want courts um, unaided, without any guidance from Congress, deciding that someone is uh, a, a, an, an insurrectionist. Uh, it seems to me we can imagine that what goes around comes around, and what goes around definitely comes around in these times. And if secretaries of state uh, start being directed by courts to remove candidates from the ballot, I can imagine in various red states a field day to take uh, Democratic candidates off the ballot on the ground that they too are insurrectionists, if Trump is. And we would, at that point, be in a situation where uh, the power of, of, of the voters to decide who, who their office holders is going to be, uh, be would be undermined. I, I don't want to go too hard against Section 3 because it's a profoundly important idea, and, and I think that for political purposes, Trump ought to be viewed as an insurrectionist. The problem here is in the details of how it's enforced without some kind of congressional uh, uh, authorization. Nat Hentoff, the great civil libertarian and author, yep. wrote a book with the title uh, free speech for me, but not for thee, how the left and the right relentlessly censor each other. Yeah. And what you were just saying, Professor Bruce Miller, constitutional law professor, 
is that if, if this idea of keeping Trump off the ballot were to succeed in some states, then it would be a field day to, for, the, for the right wing to keep so. progressive candidates or Democratic candidates off the ballot yeah. across the board. I think so. Is there any way for Trump, for the Trump, uh, for those who would keep Trump off the ballot to succeed without having that result? I can't think of a way uh, to, for them to succeed uh, without without having uh, that that result. I think that's a problem of of using Section Three uh, sort of as a judicial sword. I think it's very difficult to do it. Uh, without uh, t turning it into something that will will have have that kind of blowback problem, we also and 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 Bill, you 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 referred to this before. Uh, you know, Jack Smith could have chosen to Jack Smith, special counsel special who's counsel prosecuting Donald Trump, could have chosen to pursue Trump on federal criminal charges that look very much like insurrection, sedition, sedition, cons seditious conspiracy. He did not. And he did not, I think, in large part out of fear, respect, for the fact that Trump said in his infamous speech on the morning of, of January the 6th, approach the Capitol, but do it peacefully. He didn't use the language of incitement. Um, if any federal judge were to reach the merits of whether Trump is an insurrectionist, the fact that Smith did not indict on this ground and that uh, the, the, at least one of the important speeches that serves as the basis for viewing uh, uh, Trump as an insurrectionist might well be protected by the First Amendment uh, because uh, without uh, the language of incitement, I want you to go and break the law, it's very, very difficult and should be very difficult to convict someone of seditious speech. This is an extraordinary subject for us to be discussing. I'm so glad to be in the studio with Bruce Miller and Bill Newman. We're going to take a break and continue our conversation about the 14th Amendment and whether Section 3 precludes Donald Trump from being on a ballot, from winning an election, or serving as president. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Having pain like that and not knowing how you caused it and for how long it's lasting, it's debilitating. QC Kinetics patient Diane Richardson hated not being able to live her life to the fullest due to joint pain. But then she called QC Kinetics, where regenerative treatments helped her pain go away. The result was phenomenal. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in using natural biologics to restore and repair damaged joint tissue. This was a great alternative for me as opposed to going in and possibly having surgery or something else. There was no downtime, and that's 
that's what I love. My life is too busy for me to be sidelined. If you're tired of constant pain from arthritis or injury, don't think the old treatments are the only treatments. Discover regenerative medicine at QC Kinetics. Just to feel good and know that I'm out of pain is the best thing ever. I'm able to do everything that I want to do. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. The bedazzling Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival returns to the beautiful village of Deerfield, September 23rd and 24th. Brighten your home or wardrobe. Choose from stunning yet affordable works by over 100 artisans including a wonderful trove of gold and silver jewelry. But don't just take my word for it. Get the details at deerfield-craft.org. Celebrate a bright new fall season. Admission $5, children 12 and under free. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Professor Emeritus of Western New England University School of Law, uh, Bruce Miller, and we are talking about the 14th Amendment, Section 3. So, Bruce Miller, um, I'm thinking about the Fulton County, Georgia cases. Sure. In which there's an allegation that uh, he was a it was a racketeering enterprise under what's called the RICO statute there in Georgia uh, that Trump was engaged in to uh, prevent the uh, peaceful transition of power to the presidency and that there was fraud and misrepresentation and et cetera, et cetera, if you go through the counts there. I'm looking right now at uh, a little article about the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, sponsoring, hosting a fundraiser for people who were convicted on January 6th, uh, 2021, of breaking into the Capitol in order to stop the process of uh, declaring uh, that Joe Biden won that election. I'm looking at the president saying, I'm going to make a contribution to those people who are insurrectionists, and if president, I'm going to pardon a bunch of them as well. Does it that fit the bill? Um, I hope it does not. Um, I think I think it's possible that it that it that somebody could decide uh, that that it does. Uh, but it is not, I don't think, in any of our interests to have uh, uh, activities such as raising money for criminal defense, uh, such as arguing that what someone has done is politically justifiable. Those kinds of expressive and associational activities should not uh, be labeled as insurrection. It ought to be very narrow. It ought to be used uh, for situations that are analogous to what it was originally designed for, which was to keep former Confederates who raised war against the United States from holding office. If we start using uh, the anti-insurrection disqualification provision of Section 3 uh, to cover uh, fundraising activity, uh, open political advocacy of the kind that, that pre pres former President Trump is doing. We are, uh, we are declaring open season on much of, of what our normal political process uh, is. Uh, many of us uh, uh, raised money. You yourself, Buzz, and me to a lesser extent did a lot of legal work 
defending people who may well have engaged in terrorism, uh, probably did not as far as I'm concerned, but certainly were accused of it, uh, for you to be declared an insurrectionist for that work that you did uh, uh, would, would, I think, uh, uh, be a betrayal of the Constitution and, 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 and would chill the kind of advocacy that our system depends on. So, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't think President Trump ought to be able to serve again. He may well be an insurrectionist. Uh, but I think that was January way, 6th an insurrection. In well, your I, view? I, I think it was. I think it was. Yes, um, and and I do think that he played he played a role um, in it. Uh, the problem is, as it often is in our legal system, in the details, and and how you actually pin down using Section Three without a statute from Congress telling us how to use it, um, and, and we just we just don't have that. And, and those who have suggested that uh, uh, we really need for someone to be convicted of an insurrection before they can be disqualified, there's a very good argument for that, for that, propos for that proposition. So, uh, yep, I, I, I think, I think that uh, those activities by President Trump, former President Trump that you just described, ought not to be able to be considered to be insurrectionist activity. Bruce Miller, professor of constitutional law, I'd like you to, you to go back to something you were talking about earlier. <clears throat> and it is the question of, let me back up one yeah. second. Section three yep. of the 14th Amendment says, no person <clears throat> shall hold a federal office if they have engaged in insurrection against the country. That's the nub of this. And people are saying, some very prominent conservatives have written, uh, members of the Federalist Society say, this disqualifies Trump from running. Um, some very prominent liberal professors uh, have written and opined that this prevents, this provision prevents Trump from running again as president. Okay, I, very distinguished people, much more prominent than I, have taken that position. I still don't understand how that position can be justified without explaining who's going to decide right. and what is the criteria by which they'll right. decide and what is the standard of proof yeah. and so on and so forth. I yeah. don't get it. I yeah. really do not understand the well, argument. The, the argument uh, that, that uh, Judge Ludig and Professor Tribe make, and it's a respectable argument, is that a court will have to decide that, all of those questions, in the context of a suit brought either by voters, as we've seen in Colorado, or by Trump in the event that he's disqualified by some secretary of state. And they will fashion the process that is due, the standard of proof. They will do it in the case in order to decide the case. And what process might be due? I mean, the secretary of state goes into his office one day and says, hey, Trump's guilty of insurrection. I'm keeping him off the ballot. Well, that's it? Course, that's ridiculous. That, that is ridiculous. And, and well, the, that's not what the statute but, says. The statute says that people can challenge somebody's presence on the ballot. Not, the statute doesn't give the authority of the secretary of state to make that determination. People can challenge in court because the courts, the third branch, the three separate but equal branches, its job is to interpret the Constitution. No, its job is to decide whether the Secretary of State got it wrong, and therefore you're going to, that's what the court's going to decide. It doesn't resolve any of these issues. What a court would have to do 
it would be to tell the Secretary of State what to do in this case and in future cases, and would be designing the process on the fly for this case. It That's would be, what the, would happen. It's asking the court to legislate the process in a way that the court is ill-equipped to do and that has enormous political ramifications. And it seems to me that traditionally what the court would say, this is a political question. I'm avoiding it. Very good chance. What if somebody is not a U.S. citizen running for president or not 35 running for president? How does that person, who decides whether or not that person is uh, qualified to run for president? Well, the Constitution says both of those have to be satisfied. It's the court that has to decide, not the Secretary of State, whether the person is, in fact, 35 and a citizen of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of back to our bill of attainder problem. This one is different because of the very difficult judgment calls that are involved in deciding whether somebody is an insurrectionist. It's one thing to say the Secretary of State can decide whether somebody's 35 years old, whether under direction from a court or on their own. It's another thing to have the Secretary of State simply declare ex officio that uh, former president is, a, is, a, is, is in effect, a, a traitor. Uh, without any guidance from 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 anybody, you know the, the politics of this are deeply fraught as, as well. Because if Trump is disqualified for this reason and can't run, uh, you know it the a victory in the next election for 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 President Biden could could be pyrrhic in an important sense. Is there any level of activities involving insurrection that a candidate, a potential candidate, could engage in where you would say it's justified? for a court to say that person may not be on the ballot under Section 3 of Article 14. I mean, Amendment 14. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that there is. My problems here are not so much with whether Trump's an insurrectionist or not, but rather with the very difficult process problems of deciding that he is in the absence of some standards from somewhere. And having never been convicted criminally well, yeah. and having been acquitted on this exact same charge by the United States Congress in the impeachment proceedings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all true, all true. Very troubling. There's a whole lot more to discuss more. about this. Bruce Miller, it's always just so wonderful to hear your thoughts, and yeah. thank you for sharing them with us. Thank you. Good to be with you guys again. It's great. We're going to be back with Megan Zinn. She's been to a couple of conventions. We're going to hear about these romance novel conventions she's been attending right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The cause of a fire at Hager's Farm in Colerain Saturday morning is under investigation. The three-alarm fire resulted in the loss of a barn, four sows, 35 piglets, two tractors, a baler, mower, and more, according to Sherry Hager. Colerain Fire responded to the Hager Brothers Farm around 9.40 a.m., A third alarm was struck shortly thereafter to bring in additional tankers, with approximately 15 communities supplying mutual aid. There's an ongoing Title IX investigation into the alleged mistreatment of LGBTQ students at Amherst Middle School by staff members. What has been called a toxic atmosphere within the school administration has led to the resignation of Superintendent Michael Morris and three school committee members. Education Association member Mika McGee said the issues have to do with lack of transparency and communication from school leadership. 
the voices got louder and louder because they were being ignored. And so the students themselves brought forth some of these issues. The APA got behind the students and the families who were basically saying that they are not being listened to and that their students are, are suffering. There will be a joint meeting of the town council and remaining two school committee members tonight at 530 at Amherst Town Hall. Today marks 22 years since the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center. Nearly 3,000 people were killed that day, including four people from West Springfield and Westfield, Tara Shea Creamer, Brian Murphy, Danny Trant, and Melissa Harrington Hughes. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance for scattered showers and thunderstorms, highs 76 to 80. Tonight, mostly cloudy, chance for showers, overnight lows 60 to 64. And the outlook for Tuesday becoming partly sunny, highs in the upper 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is pushing an airbag manufacturer to recall 52 million inflators because the agency says they can explode. The manufacturer, ARC, has so far refused to issue a recall. There have been seven reported injuries and two deaths. Pharmacies that offer flu shots are providing rewards to customers who roll up their sleeves. Walgreens, CVS, Kroger, and Winn-Dixie are just a few of the retailers encouraging the shots by offering coupons and discounts on other store purchases. The latest Consumer Affairs Trend Micro Threat Alert found shopping and shipping scams are still plentiful across the Internet. But a growing threat is a new trend among scammers. Scammers are claiming they can protect you from scams, and then they steal your personal information. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. This is our uh, Writer's Block segment with uh, Megan Rubiner Zinn. Uh, Megan, you have just come from a couple of conferences, I understand, one in Anaheim, the mm -hmm. Steamy Lit Conference. Yes, with a lovely name. And one at Yale in mm -hmm. New Haven, mm -hmm. which is the Romance Fiction Conference. Tell us about these conferences yeah. and why you went. Yeah, um, it was it was a blast, both of them. Um, I, I, I went ostensibly because I'm a copy editor and a line editor, and I went to network and meet writers and industry professionals and, you know, hopefully people I can get work from in the long run. But also... I'm a fan of, you know, this genre, and um, I just really, you know, I've, I've known that these kinds of things existed, and this is sort of the, fir the first year 
I decided to like experiment, see if it was worthwhile going. So I went to in August. I went to Steamy Lit Con, Steamy which Lit. Uh, I just want to back up a little mm-hmm. bit. The genre is genre is romance novels. Romance novel. Yes. And, and you've said to me in the past, this is not your mother's romance novel. No, about. romance novels um, change very quickly. They very much reflect um, <coughs> the culture at the time. And so stuff that was in romance novels even five years ago will feel really out of, dated, out of date. So the stuff that, the stereotype of romance novels from the 70s and, and the, the Fabio covers and those types of things, they were you know, of their time and people love them and some people still love them, um, but they're not what um, people are reading today for the most part. Um, romance novels are much more diverse. Um, and that's what both of these conferences really was about. Um, and they um, have much more, much broader range of topics, much broader range of writers and characters. Uh, Steamy Lit Con was, it's, it's called that because it was run by somebody who does what's called a book box subscription, where you subscribe and every month you get a couple of books um, chosen by the, the people sending them to you and, and some swag. And the person who runs that calls it the steamy lit box. She created this conference, calls it the steamy lit conference. Are they steamy? Very often, yes, they are. Um, Sometimes not, sometimes very much so. Um, And the conference was geared towards diversity in romance. Um, And the people who put it on were women of color. Um, Many, uh, most of the writers were women of color or queer or write about um, disabled characters um, and, you know, just the sort of the gamut of the genre and so that was in anaheim in uh in august about three weeks ago and just before the hurricane can't believe i went to california and hit a hurricane (laughs) um and um and it was it was great it was um you know it was i would compare it to comic-con which i think people kind of understand that although there's a lot less cosplay and this was a fan conference it's really geared towards fan coming fans coming like comic-con to meet their favorite writers and get their books signed and then to meet other people who love what they love and talk, talk about it, what they Was it well attended, the Anaheim oh, conference? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was the first one of this conference. And I don't know the numbers, but I think there was like 1,200 or 1,400 people there. And it, um, in the mornings, they had panels, which were some of the best panels I've attended of any conference. Um, the first one, which was the keynote, was on um, diversity in publishing. And it was this... Um, you know, power group of romance writers. I'll mention them. They won't mean anything to you, but they will to some listeners. Um, Nana Malone, Alison Cochran, Adriana Herrera, Nisha Sharma, Denise Williams, Meredith Shore, and Dana Kudradro, whose name I can't seem to say. And they talked about, you know, what, um, how publishing is um, limiting, supporting and limiting diversity in, in all publishing, and especially romance, what readers and writers can do to change that, how writers can better write um, like characters that are outside of their own experience and make those full, rich characters. And it was just it's a bunch of brilliant women um, and a very articulate, brilliant women. And so just to hear them put some of these things into words um, was thrilling. Um, and then they, um, and the second half of the day for both days of this conference is the writers are in the ballrooms at this hotel, and they've got they're all set up at their tables, and the readers line up, and they've got their um, carts. They've got these like these carts where they can carry bring all their books in the rolling carts, 
And some of them come with the book, some of them buy them there, and they get them signed. And it's not, I'm not a big person for getting books signed, but for them, I mean, it's so fun to see how much they love this. It, uh, that was really thrilling, too. And, and the first night, they had a movie night, and it was a bunch of people in a ballroom watching um, the movie of Red, White, and Royal Blue, which was a very popular romance novel, and they just did a film of it. And, you know, that's really fun. The first time the two characters kiss, the room, like, you know, explodes into cheers. You know, you don't get that when you're watching that at home on TV. The second night they did a ball and people, some people dressed up in full like Regency regalia. Um, and, you know, they covered everything. There was, as I said, really great panels. I went to panels on the industry um, because that's, I was there to meet industry people and writers. And, um, but they also had things on mental illness representation in, in, in um, romance novels, BIPOC characters, um, disability inclusion, things like that. Um, I just want to add, yeah. Bill, um, isn't it ironic that at the very time that Megan says one of the best panels she ever heard at a conference was talking about diversity in, yeah. in publishing in the romance novel genre, at the same time we see books banned for specifically mm -hmm. oh, yes, that yes. reason because they're treating... Mm -hmm. uh, people who don't look exactly like the band, right. the, the wannabe banners, um, uh, they, their books aren't even welcome in the library. Right. It's ironic. It's very ironic. Um, it, but all of this is ironic. At the same time that we seem to be progressing, we seem to be regressing, depending on what you're looking at and where you're looking. Um, and certainly the romance industry is progressing a lot, but you know there are still, uh, there are still uh, ways to go. I think. Is there a lot of pressure to include um, marginalized community characters in romance novels today? I don't really know because I'm not a writer and so I'm not dealing with publishers in that way. I think there are, um, there's definitely pressure to be publishing um, books by people of color that include characters of color, queer, um, queer writers, queer characters. Um, but at the same time, there are things that are limiting that too. For people who are, say, you know, cishet women writing books, um, it's encouraged to have, I think, you know, a strong diversity of characters in that book, but to learn how to write those authentically and responsibly. Um, yeah. Did in, in this conferences that you went to, was there a sense of whether or not the book banning? Uh, movement in the United States is hurtful to their attempts to publish or whether in some ways it's helpful because there's nothing quite like saying banned in, so, in <laughs> Alabama to help sales other places. Yeah, that, that was addressed directly at the second conference I went to, the one yet this weekend at Yale. Um, not surprisingly, that was an academic conference and that this came up even more. Um, and one of the things that was discussed, um, and I can tell more about that whole conference afterwards, um, was... Um, romance novels is not surprisingly to anybody a genre that gets seriously denigrated and in terms of book bannings in some ways that's great because most of the it, they're not on the radar of people who are banning books if they were um, were on the radar more of these books would be banned for a variety of reasons um, but on the other hand we don't want this the genre to be denigrated in the way that it is um, so the romance novels um, are not necessarily on the radar of people who are banning these things. They are to an extent 
Um, also, the keynote at the conference that I was at this weekend, the keynote speaker was Roxanne um, Gay, and she, you know she talked about that quite a bit. And as she said, no, it's it's not a badge of honor, really, because in the long run, um, this is very bad. And of course, all of her books are banned in somewhere, someplace or another. This is uh, really interesting for us. Instead of being the interviewer, uh, Megan Zinn is the interviewee. We're talking about two conferences, which she. Uh, attended, which really sound fascinating, one in Anaheim called the Steamy Lit Conference, and then the Romance Fiction Conference in Yale this past weekend. We'll continue our conversation with Meg right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're listening to Megan Zinn, who just attended a couple of conferences that are really fascinating. One in Anaheim called the Steamy Lit Conference and one in our own backyard at Yale. Yale. Down in New Haven called the Romance Fiction Conference. I'd like to hear about that Yale conference. Mm -hmm. That was, it was one of the best weekends I've, I've had in a very long time. Um, it was a, an academic conference at Yale um, it was organized by a feminist collection of graduate students. Uh, the interesting thing was most of those are graduate students in religious studies, um, but also in African-American studies, English, women's gender and sexuality studies, even one whose one of her specialties is architecture, which unfortunately didn't get to meet her and find out, you know, uh, how that all works. Um, and it was called Popular Romance Fiction, The Literature of Hope. And it was um, brought together academics, uh, writers, 
fans, publishing people, to talk about um, romance um, at really a scholarly level. Um, and it's very fun to see, because everybody, we're talking about romance at a very, very scholarly level, but at the same time, everybody is a romance fan, so they also like talking about them like they are giddy 14-year-old girls. It's, um, and it's mostly women. Um, and it's a wonderful combination of being very erudite, but also just that, um, that um, inner love that met most of these people have had since they were pretty young. But how does the theme hope fit in? Well, hope is um, a major theme when people talk about romance, particularly romance, diversity in romance, because it is the genre. One of the rules of romance novels is they have to have a happy ending. If it doesn't have a happy ending, it's a romance, it's a love story, whatever. It is not a romance novel. Romeo and Juliet, no. Love story, no. Um, and so the, Hallmark, the, yes. Yes. So that anything that happens in a romance novel, and they can be, they can address very, very difficult issues. Um, they can have very difficult things happen in them, but you know when you're reading about it that it will come out okay. And particularly, a lot of people at this conference in particular and at others talk, a lot of um, women of color, queer people, um, they talk about how when they grew up, they did not see themselves in these books. They were reading romance, they were loving them, but they were all primarily about cis-het cis women and women. They were not seeing themselves. And they, it's, uh, they talked about how important it is and how it changes the way you see yourself and your place in the world when you can read books in which you get a happy ending, um, in which it's, I mean, there are, there's, you know, a wealth of wonderful um, literature written by people of color, but very often the way that publishing drives it, particularly in lit fit, they don't have happy endings, um, or it's, it's very complicated. And for many people, they, sometimes you just want to read a book about, you know, a black family that has a happy ending. Um, and that's, so that's why it's called The Literature of Hope. Um, and for me, this was really, it was really moving for me when I, um, I was in graduate school a long time ago. I, I entered uh, an American studies program at the University of Minnesota in 1990. And one of my interests was kind of looking at history through popular culture, through popular works, through popular fiction. And I wasn't necessarily going to study romance, um, but I was a romance reader back then. And in our intro seminar for our graduate program, we read this book called Reading the Romance by Janice Radway, which was, I think, the only sort of academic treatment of romance novels at the time. And the conversation in the seminar the day that we read that and talked about it was pretty much, oh, these poor pathetic women who read these books and because they're reading these books, they're not getting out on the streets. They're not demanding revolution. Um, they're not overthrowing the patriarchy or capitalism. And um, the, the books are the problem. Um, and I kept my mouth shut because um, I was a first-year graduate student, and I was not going to say anything. Now, um, in fact, um, one of the um, organizers and um, the leader of one of the panels actually went to the same graduate program. Um, she was at Minnesota. She was in English, but they are associated programs. Ten years after me, she did her dissertation on romance novels. She's now a professor at, I think, Cooney and LaGuardia Community College, and she specializes in romance novels. And then to see how, you know, that changed in 10 years, but now how seriously this was taken, how much more it's respected as, um, as a genre, as a legitimate form of literature to be studied in academia was, you know, just kind of thrilling for me. Um, I, I think it's so interesting, Megan Zinn, because when I think of romance novels, and again, I'm, uh, years ago, mm -hmm. my impression of the genre yeah. 
uh, is an old impression, and I think a stale impression, yeah, and I absolutely. should just get rid of it. <laughs> okay. But it nevertheless was about an individual desire to find love, mm-hmm. to find fulfillment through a relationship. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about an institutional kind of look at the world, looking at a lens yeah. involving diversity, equity, inclusion, mm-hmm. yes. looking at it. Mm-hmm. Bill was talking about marginalized communities and their relationship to the kind of personal growth. Yeah. So it's kind of marrying culture and mm-hmm. institution to the individual pursuit of what we all should pr- pursue, which is right. love. Right, right. And it's about, and actually romance novels are really about, I always say that the main character is the relationship. It is about the development of that relationship. And when you start looking at, for, at it from a, a, from a more scholarly point of view, you're looking at the way it reflects culture at any given time, and romance novels in particular because they change so quickly. Um, one, one of the, um, Adriana Herrera, um, said, one of the writers said that if you want to get a, a, a barometer of a culture, our culture's attitudes towards sex and particular areas around sex and desire, read a romance novel from that period because that will tell you the attitudes, and you can see how quickly it changes. Like the way that consent is addressed in romance novels has changed radically in the past, I would say, five years. Whereas five years ago, there was kind of, well, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there was often dubious consent um, around sexual activity. And then it's no longer, the consent is clear, but it was always implied. Now, given the movements in our culture, usually on the page, it is um, not only... Um, uh, the consent is received, but enthusiastically um, given on the page, and that's a big difference. For instance, in the Megan, who's the who are the readers? Who's the audience uh, here, and how big is it? Huge. Um, the and that was really fun to meet these these people, meet people from so many different walks of life. Um, romance novel, I think, is the largest selling um, genre. If it's not, I, I'm pretty sure it is. I don't have those numbers with me. Um, and that exploded during the pandemic. A bunch of new readers came. TikTok, there's a whole movement, called they call it Book Talk, and it's usually young people promoting books that they love on um, TikTok, and that has caused some writers to just explode. Um, so they come from every walk of life. They, they are, as, as some um, of the writers say, we keep the lights on in the publishing industry. Um, romance pays for litfic. That's why the publishers can publish litfic because they're making so much money off of romance novels and mystery and science fiction, et cetera. Um, so, but yeah, every, across the spectrum of, of people. In the minute and a half that we have left, as somebody who is an insightful fan of the genre of romance novels, did anything surprise you at these conferences? Did you learn anything new? Um, yeah, it, certainly um, the... Um, uh, the, the the change in um, in it's, uh, the attitude of academia toward it, um, but also you know even for me even though I know better and um, I'm sometimes surprised at who some of these writers really are and what they do in their in, in their daily life because many of them still have their day jobs and for instance and uh, there's a writer named Eloisa James very well known very popular writes historical fiction I haven't read her books but I'm very familiar with her and she was there uh, lovely person very funny and and smart and. I, what I didn't realize until the conference is that she is the chair of the English program at Fordham. Her real name is Mary Bly. She's also the daughter of Robert Bly, one of the foremost poets of the 20th century. These are the people who are writing and reading romance novels. Um, and that was, it was a good reminder to me. And 
We now have 30 seconds. Ah, so wow. what would you like to leave our listeners with about the romance about novel? the romance novels. Um, you know, try them out um, and check out writers. I'll, I'll name a few writers that I think people should, you know, be exploring if they're not. Um, and some of these were at the, uh, were there. Adriana Herrera, Beverly Jenkins, uh, Sarah McLean, Alyssa Cole, um, uh, Alexis Hall, some of these folks. Check them out. Amazing writers, really fun books. And you can check out that list on our podcast of Talk the Talk. Megan Zinn, I love interviewing you. Oh, good. It's It's great. And everybody else, thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, health care, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. WHMP Northampton and 